Hey, well, listen, can I ask you to grab your Bible with, that you may have brought with you this morning to, and, and head for the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes. And if you got out of the house without your Bible today, if you'll just raise your hand, we can fix that problem and supply you with a copy of God's Word. So just put it up there high enough so that we can see that, and we will be sure to get a copy of God's Word in your hand. If you don't own a Bible then keep this one. Write your name in it. Let it be a gift from our church family to you. You'll always have a Bible when you come back. There is a note page in your bulletin. looks like this. Grab that as well because we'll be using that along the way. And there's a Bible need up here in the very front, guys. Very front. Okay? Make sure. Keep those hands up there, guys. Great, great. So church family, even the quickest of glances at uh, your note page lets you know that We are returning once again to our study series that we put on hold for the Easter season. We committed ourselves some time ago to a verse-by-verse explore of this Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, arguably one of the most misunderstood books in the Bible and one of the toughest to study as well. But we determined to just put our heads down and start plowing the ground, and the Lord has been faithful to us all the way up through chapter 9 and verse 6. Now, if you'll remember with me that as we open up Ecclesiastes, we're actually opening up the diary of a man who is on a desperate search to find out what it takes to have a meaningful, purpose-filled, significantly uh, satisfying life that matters and makes a difference. Ecclesiastes is the diary of Solomon, Israel's great king, It's the diary that he kept as he searched for a life that makes sense. And so that makes the book of Ecclesiastes important to us, not just because it's Holy Scripture, but also because uh, we want the same kind of thing. We want a meaningful, purpose-filled, significantly satisfying life that matters and makes a difference. And so where better to be than in the book of Ecclesiastes together? What makes Solomon's diary unique among Bible books is that Solomon gives us, by and large, the search for life's meaning from the perspective of one who leaves God out of the search. And I think we've all kind of gotten that that much out of our series up to this point. In fact, if you recall, Solomon has a favorite expression as he looks at life because he looks at it largely from a certain point of view. And what is that point of view? From under the sun. Absolutely. That's his perspective. In other words, he looks at life without God in the view, just on the horizontal, for the most part, in his diary. A horizontal look at life. So it's life under the sun. And this phrase, under the sun, he he uses it almost 30 times in the book, and it's the key to understanding the book properly. Ecclesiastes only makes sense if we remember that we're reading the observation of one who has left God, for the most part, out of his search for a meaningful life. Every now and then, though, Solomon will poke his head above the sun and he'll bring God into view. And in fact, that is actually going to happen today for us. But then just as quickly, he can dive back down under the sun. And uh, it's not really until the end of the book that he figures it out in the last couple of chapters that life uh, really lived to its fullest means that God has got to be the one filling up your life. You'd agree with that, wouldn't you? Absolutely. 
So his search for a meaningful life becomes very helpful, valuable to us, because we get to see what results when a person looks for meaning and joy and purpose in life but, but leaves God out of the equation. And without a living personal uh, relationship with God through faith in Jesus, man, it's tough. It's really tough. He shows us life without a spiritual dimension, without an eternal focus, if it's just under the sun. So knowing this is Solomon's general line of attack. We stepped into chapter 9 before Easter break, and in the first six verses, he pressed home a painful reality. Under the sun, he says, life is unpredictable and death is absolutely certain. Look again at verse 4, just as we get a running start to where we want to be today. Verse 4, we'll put it up on the screen as well. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done. Where? (laughs) under the sun. Solomon says in this section that as long as you're alive, you have opportunity. Life means opportunity. Death is the end of opportunity. Hence his pithy little proverb, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Better to be a living chihuahua than a dead Simba, right? Kind of that idea. The living have opportunities that the dead do not have. And where we went with that truth last time we were in this place was to say that as long as you're alive, you have the opportunity to change your eternity through faith in Jesus Christ. Die without Jesus. And the opportunity to have sins forgiven, hell's judgment taken away, to have a purpose-filled life now, and a personal relationship with God that lasts forever, Well, that's not there. You die without Jesus, all of that is lost. But as long as you're alive, there is the opportunity to change your eternity. So we we tease that truth out of that passage. Important stuff, really important. Now, if you've been with us on this journey through the book up to this point, you could not be faulted for thinking that as we step into the next section this morning, verses 7 through 10, It's going to be yet another of those painful realities of life under the sun. Kind of like, okay, Pastor Tim, let's get it done. Let's go for it. But believe it or not, church family, Solomon doesn't go in that kind of a direction this morning. He goes in a different direction. In fact, I would even say this morning he goes in a very pleasant direction for us. One that I think you're going to enjoy and I hope you're going to want to apply the truth of it, even today in your life. It is verses 7 through 10 of chapter 9. We'll put these words up on the screen, but you have them there on your lap. Let me read them for us from my Bible, the English Standard Version. Solomon writes, Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and your toil at which you toil under the sun. 
Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. And we'll stop right there. And you're saying, that's a, that's a pleasant passage, Pastor Tim? It is a pleasant passage. And, and we're going to show you why in just a moment. But let me ask this. Were you able to catch the big point that Solomon's trying to make in these, in these verses? What he's really saying is that rather than allowing the truth of the uncertainty of life and the shortness of life to take you to the place of moping around all depressed and bummed out, well, I guess I'm going to die, so I'll just eat a bowl of worms, you know, kind of that attitude. Solomon says, take the reality of life's uncertainty and this inexorable slide towards death that is before each one of us, take those truths and use that truth to really enjoy living life with God right now. That's the big picture thought. Today, brothers and sisters, we get biblical permission to flat out enjoy living life. Thus, the title on your note page, enjoy, all caps, your life with God. Now, as, as we said a moment ago, Ecclesiastes gives us kind of a front row seat look at life when God is left out, life when God is not included. When that is your choice to leave God out of your life, it leads to one of two basic approaches to life. And we've, we've seen both of them in the book of Ecclesiastes already. One is the choice to head in what we might call a, a, a hedonistic direction, hedonism. Most of us have probably heard the term but we may not know what it means. When we talk about hedonism, we're talking about a person that says there is no God. Death is coming. So I'm going to seek pleasure and indulge myself without restraint. I am going to take it all in because that's it. I get this shot and then I'm done. I'm dead. It's over. That's hedonism. In fact, self is is on the throne You live for yourself, you worship yourself, pleasure and self-gratification are the end game. There's no God, so death motivates decadence. You just live it all out. Life's finding the next party, the next sensation, the next tantalizing experience, the next high. Solomon, as we saw in the early chapters of this book, he tried to live this kind of a lifestyle, but he came up empty. Now, the other approach to life when God is left out sees the pendulum kind of swing clear in the other direction toward kind of a morbid, defeated, hopeless pessimism. Que sera, sera, what's going to be is going to be. It doesn't matter, we're all going to die, so what's the point? Well, that's gloomy despair. Those who take this approach like to call themselves realists. Philosophers call it fatalism. Hedonism? or fatalism, both are dead-end lifestyles that result when you leave God out of your life. Hedonism fails because life can never truly offer enough to satisfy. And fatalism fails because it brings no real meaning to anything. And then along comes Ecclesiastes. It offers a blunt description of what life looks like and how it works without God. But then the deeper you get into the book, the more God starts to appear right where life needs him the most. And church family, that happens today. So let's get into the meat of what Solomon's saying, keeping in mind that verse 7 comes on the heels 
of a really harsh description of the certainty of death. And since we're going to die and we never know what day is our last day, here's what he says in verse 7. Go, go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. Now, did you hear all that? Solomon brings God into this moment saying that in view of life's shortness, in view of death's approach, go, eat your bread, drink your wine with joy and with a glad heart. In other words, God's not just sanctioning our eating of food and our drinking of beverages. He wants us to find pleasure and enjoyment when we're doing that. Eat and drink with a glad and merry heart. God made these things for you to to enjoy, and he approves when you delight in what he has created and given to you. Do you like the sound of that, church? I like the sound of that. Go and eat and drink with joy. I mean, why else would God infuse foods with such a dizzying range of incredible flavors and give us taste buds that can distinguish the most subtle differences in flavors and and then our and give us the nervous system to send thousands of pleasure signals a second up to our brain why would god do that if he didn't want us to enjoy it right and just looking at that slide you're salivating aren't you can't wait for service to be over these are gifts these are gifts from God to us, the flavors that are represented there and then the taste buds to be able to enjoy them. Those are gifts from God. They're part of his purpose, part of his plan, part of his, his pleasure in creating them. In fact, check out these words from Psalm 104, 14 and 15. You, God, cause the grass to grow for the livestock. You give them food and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. God, you did all that. You did all that because you wanted to do that and give it to us. The fall of mankind into sin in the Garden of Eden did not remove all of those pleasures from his creation. The psalmist says these make the face shine. They strengthen our hearts. What the fall did was to infect our soul with a terrible new temptation that had not been there before Genesis chapter 3. And that temptation was to make created things our new God, right? That's what the fall did. It brought in that temptation to to push God off the throne of our life and let these other things become more important. Sin disposes us to worship created things rather than the creator. That's what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 1. So when Ecclesiastes urges us to go and eat and drink, it's not merely a statement that sanctions God's creation gifts to us so that we could consume them. It's saying consume them happily. Consume them joyfully. Delighting in all that God has has infused into those foods and into those drinks so that you can experience them with great pleasure. 
flat out in joy. That's what the text is saying. Not to the place where any food or drink brings you under its influence or under its control, because foods and drinks can do that, of course. Nor do we consume and enjoy these foods to the point where they harm our body because our body was given to us by God to serve him with and we're supposed to take care of it. To do that, to, to bring ourselves under the influence of food or drink or to harm our body, that would be sin. That would break God's heart and turn a wonderful gift into the abuse of the gift. But taken rightly here, Flat out enjoy what you eat and what you drink. God approves. Did you hear that? Do you like the sound of that? I like the sound of that. And and is it just food and drink that's in view here? No. It gets better. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Verse 8. Now, a couple of thousand years ago, back in Solomon's day, people didn't have washing machines and they didn't have bleach. White means clean. And so you had a clean white garment that you kept reserved for very special occasions. You didn't wear it except at very special moments. The wedding, the party, the festival. To wear white was was the same as, as, as celebrating, partying having a great time. It's like saying, hey, let's dress up and let's go to our favorite restaurant and let's celebrate our anniversary or, or a graduation, maybe an engagement or a, a birthday or maybe a promotion, maybe even a decision to give your life to Jesus. Let's put on our best clothes and let's go out and celebrate. Do that. God approves. Did you hear that? And don't let oil be lacking on your head. Again, in Solomon's time, resources were very limited. There wasn't a bed, bath, and beyond down the street that you could just go to whenever you wanted to. Oil was extremely valuable in Solomon's day. In fact, remember when Mary anointed Jesus? Do you remember? It was this perfumed oil, and it was very expensive. So this is really special stuff. It's extravagant stuff. In our day, it might be like using a luxury moisturizer or an expensive perfume from Paris, ladies, or, or a fine cologne, guys, if you're into cologne. We're Idlewild Mountain guys. I'm not sure many of us do that, but some of us might. But it's, we're talking about an extravagance here, something that brings pleasure to you, but it's not essential in your life. Go ahead. Moisturize. Exfoliate. <laughs> Get your nails done. (laughs) Splash on that cologne if that's your thing. Enjoy this. These are life's little extras from God and they come from him to you. Enjoy them because God approves. But wait, there's more. Verse 9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain And and that word vain shouldn't really be the word here. It should be the word fleeting because that really fits the context better. The Hebrew word can be translated a variety of different ways. So in the context, I would suggest it's the word fleeting. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your fleeting life that he's given you under the sun because that's your portion in life. 
She's the one God gave you. Solomon makes an assumption here that you have a wife or by extension that you have a husband. Now that's not always the case and that may not be the case for some of us in this room right now. Living singly for the glory of God can bring much joy and pleasure and purpose and a richly satisfying life. And the Bible talks about that. Living singly for God's glory. So, so that's, that's, a, that's a place we could go, but, but that's not where Solomon's at in this moment. Here his focus is on married love. And if we were to go back to the Garden of Eden again here for just a moment, let's remember that God created for Adam, we're told, in chapter 2, chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis, a gift. And her name was Eve. God made Eve and brought her to Adam and told him that I'm giving you her because there is not a helper found suitable for you. Amongst all the created uh, creatures of of, of the earth, there's not one that really fits you, Adam. So God provided a helpmate. He also says, it's not good for you to be alone. I'm bringing her to you so that you will have a companion. And so he invented women and men, and he created for Adam a companion who was the perfect complement to him in his humanity, in his masculinity, in his emotional and spiritual makeup, and in his sexuality. She was perfect. And why did God do this? Because God wanted Adam to enjoy Eve. And he wanted Eve to enjoy Adam. Among his purposes, that's clearly there. And so this includes all aspects of God's design for marriage. Friendship, companionship, emotional intimacy, the the, the complementary uniting of two lives to become stronger together than either one of them is when they're apart. In view is human reproduction. And, And marital sexual intimacy simply because it's fun and it's pleasurable. That's all in view in this moment. It's all good and God approves. With gratitude to God, eat your food, drink your latte, celebrate often in your best threads, enjoy your perfume, and make love to your wife or your husband. Well, Tim, did you just say that in church? (laughs) Yes, I did. Because that's what the text is saying. That's what it's saying. Within the boundaries of biblically defined marriage between a man and a woman, absolutely enjoy it all. Because God approves. Now, I know what some of you guys especially are thinking right now. This is your new favorite Bible passage, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, isn't it? (laughs) But wait, there's even more. Verse 10. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Here Solomon talks about our work. Find what you love to do vocationally and go all out. Do it to the very best of your ability and find satisfaction and a sense of accomplishment in your work. Work out of the skill set that God gave you. He gave you abilities. Work out of those. Be a God-honoring asset in your workplace, whatever that is for you. 
Provide for your family. Save, share, invest. Why? Because God gave you the ability to do that. He approves of your work. The Holy Spirit's words through Paul speak into this moment. Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, what are the next two words, church? Work heartily. Work with all you've got. Work flat out as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. Whatever job we have, whoever our boss might be, as Christians, our true boss is who? That's the Lord Jesus, isn't it? He's our boss. We labor and do our work unto him. And because that's true, we can work with flat out joy and enjoy our jobs. Now, not to the place where our job becomes the most important thing. It becomes an addiction or our God. And certainly we don't want to work to the harm of our our family, our relationship with our mates or our kids, always gone at work, never at home. That's not what this is talking about. But enjoy your work. Do it with all your might because God approves. He gave you that as a gift. So go. Eat cheesecake and lobster. Drink your espresso. Grab life's moments and celebrate them as often as you can. Enjoy that facial and that pedicure. Love that man. Love that woman. And work like the Energizer Bunny. That's Ecclesiastes. It's Tim's revised version as well. (laughs) So so six uh, areas of life. Enjoy them to the fullest. Our man Solomon encourages us by the Holy Spirit. Why? Well, one reason is because God's the one who made all that stuff and he takes great pleasure when you find pleasure in those things. However, the reason, the other reason that Solomon brings this all to us is because he hasn't forgotten about an inescapable truth. Death is not far away. Now, again, remember, Solomon's under the sun, so we've got to cut him a little slack <laughs> Verse 9, enjoy these things because your life is fleeting under the sun. Because this is your portion in life under the sun. In other words, the window of time you have is short. It's going to close quickly. So don't miss what God gives you to enjoy. Verse 10, same idea. Don't forget there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in the grave to which you are going So clearly Solomon has not really come out from under the sun just yet. Part of him is saying, come on, eat, drink, party, pamper, love, and work with gratitude to God. Not because things are forever, but because they're not forever. Enjoy them because they're not forever. Take them, experience them, relish them, savor them, explore them, enjoy them. Because death's going to come and it's going to steal these things away. Now, if all you have is an under the sun perspective only, this is kind of where you're going to go with your thinking. It's going to end, so I'm going to seize the day. 
But, before, but, but for you and me as, as Christians, for you and me who are in Jesus Christ by faith, enjoyment of God and his gifts, brothers and sisters, it never ends, does it? It never ends. We don't have to think about death being the end of it all. No, it, no, a, a few things are going to change, but, but only for the infinitely better. And I would just put in front of us 1 Corinthians 2, 9. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Amen? Amen. We're not going to be under that cloud of, well, death's coming. No way. For the devoted follower of Jesus, everything in this life that is good, man, it's just a tiny, tiny taste of what is coming. So much so that when we've completely burned out every imagination neuron in our brain trying to anticipate the pleasures and delights of God's heaven, we won't even have begun to stuck our big toe into the ocean of his plans for us. Solomon in this moment, stuck under the sun, can't quite go there, but fellow lover of Jesus, you can go there. You can go there. When C.S. Lewis, famous Oxford professor and author, was contemplating how to end his wonderful allegory on the Christian life called The Chronicles of Narnia, I know some of you have read those books, this is how he chooses to close out the last book. And this is the last paragraph in the last book. The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. This is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That is such a great paragraph and such a great description of the Christian's life. Solomon's not there in this moment, but brothers and sisters in Jesus, by God's grace and through faith in him, you're there. Yes, you're there. Well, as we would wrap things up now, there are a couple of takeaways that flow out of this passage that I really would not want us to miss. If you'll flip that little note page over, I'll simply frame one of these takeaways like this. The first thing versus second things. When it comes to these six areas that Solomon speaks about, eating, drinking, celebrating, pampering, loving, and working, to say nothing of many more areas of earthly enjoyment that he doesn't even mention here. Listen carefully now. We can only truly and fully enjoy these things when we do not worship them. Let me say that one more time. We can only truly and fully enjoy these things when we do not worship them. And here's what I mean by that. We can only enjoy these many wonderful pleasures of this life that God intends for us to enjoy when we see them as secondary things. Secondary to 
Him. Agreed, church? Agreed? We must not miss this. This is so critically important. This is where vast numbers of people in our world right now are blowing it. And some of them are your friends. Some of them are maybe even family members. There is a first thing in this life. And there are secondary things. Maybe even to be more accurate, there is a first person. And there are second things. God is ultimate. God is first. He made the universe. He made all things, be they seen or unseen. And they are second to him as the maker and giver of them. And all the pleasures within the created realm, whether we're talking about food or drink or celebrations or activities or relationships or vocation or whatever, those are to be enjoyed always as gifts, never as the main thing. Never are they to replace or displace the giver of the gift. They're never the first thing. They will always be second things. And they can only be truly and fully enjoyed when they're seen in this light as an expression of God's loving heart to want to bring us pleasure. All the super enjoyable second things in our lives were given by God to point us back to God, weren't they? When second things become the first thing, the joy and the pleasure of those things is lost to us. They were never meant to satisfy us fully. These things morph from gifts to be enjoyed all out to becoming goals or trophies or taskmasters, always demanding more and never really satisfying. Their full enjoyment is lost when the second thing is made the first thing. Agreed? When Jesus commanded, for example, in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength, Jesus was defining an order of priorities in our lives. Was he not? God's the first thing. Love him. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in Matthew 6 spoke to the people about how their focus on some of the secondary things was just like what Solomon was talking about. Here's what he says. Therefore do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the unbelieving seek after all these things. Your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek what? First. Seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness and all that other stuff. Well, it just falls into place, doesn't it? Could Jesus be any more clear? So much of the seemingly out-of-control pursuit that we see in our culture today of acquiring material wealth or or chasing after partners or multiple partners or same-sex partners or, or indulging every desire, gaining fame or status or approval, partying it up and drinking it up and, and drugging it up, but never being truly fulfilled or satisfied, which leads to just more frustration and despair and more unbridled pursuit of those things 
all of this madness that's literally destroying our culture, church, flows out of the fallen sinful nature which attempts to make second things the first thing, right? It's a diagnosis for the condition of our culture. We've turned it upside down and made second things first. And the world lies to us, telling us that's where fulfillment is. When someone has no relationship with the first person, God, through faith in Jesus, they keep trying to squeeze happiness out of second things. And it will never, ever work. And so the question I would ask in this moment, with all of us gathered here, is is could this perhaps be be you? today? Could it be you? You've been, without realizing it, looking for second things to do for you what they can never do for you? Your life aches with an emptiness and you know it, but you you keep hidden from yourself and you certainly keep it hidden from others. But the emptiness is there and you can't seem to figure out why. Why is it there? Because you've done everything the world says to do. Partied hard, chased after the good life, climbed the ladder, had your successes, tried everything multiple times. But with no true lasting satisfaction coming from it, you wake up the next morning saying, something's missing. What's missing in my life? You know what's missing? You know what's missing? The first thing. The first thing. The first person. A person to be loved by. And to love and live for who is bigger than all of these secondary things in your life. A God, a Savior who doesn't lie or deceive or try to use you. Who doesn't wear out. Who doesn't disappoint or get old or fade or diminish who's always new and always alive and better because he's infinite God. There's only one first thing and his name is Jesus. Yes? God's son who came to the world sent from God as the gift of gifts. He put on our flesh so he could die for all the sin in our lives for all the times when we've made second things first. He came to remove that sin barrier that stands between us and God. Jesus came and he died for our sin, died to displace second things from our hearts and enthrone himself as the glorious first person in our lives. He becomes this when we put our personal trust in him, when we believe in his saving death on the cross and his life-giving resurrection. In fact, Jesus puts it this way in John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, and what's the next word? Believes him who sent me has what? The gift of eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. To believe in Jesus as our Savior and Lord means to put him where he belongs on the priority list of our heart. He belongs in first place. Everything else, and this is super important, everything else in our lives, when Jesus is first, everything else moves down, doesn't it? It moves down. 
In fact, everything moves to where it was always supposed to be. And only then are we truly free to enjoy the secondary things in this world that all come from God. Enjoy them as secondary things and nothing more. Agreed? We take pleasure in them as gifts from God to us. They don't own us. They don't control us. And they're not our goal. They're not the end game for us. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it how? Abundantly. To the max. All out. Life lived with maximum enjoyment because it's lived with God in first place. Now, if that feeling of emptiness that I mentioned a moment ago is something that you can relate to right now, did you ever think that God might have put that emptiness in your heart to drive you to Jesus? That that's why it's there? He wants you. He truly wants you to enjoy life all out, but enjoy it with Him first. Tell Him right now that's what you want. Tell him, and he will make it happen for you. And then tell us so that we can help you begin this new faith journey. Tell us, too. And then one more quick application for all of us who have stepped off of the throne of our lives and have joyfully given that place to God. There's an application for us. I would remind all of us that the first word in verse 7 of Ecclesiastes 9 is the word what? Go, go. It doesn't say wait and it doesn't say be passive, does it? Go, man, that's an action word. Delicious foods, amazing drinks, super fun celebrations of life with family and friends, pampering uh, with the oil of gladness and marital love in all of its forms and all of its expressions and satisfying meaningful work. These are things we have God's permission not only to pursue, but also to enjoy. There's no guilt fellow Christian. There's no shame in enjoying these things. We're not being unspiritual if we enter into these places and enjoy life all out. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they delight in our joy and our enjoyment in their gifts to us. When we thankfully acknowledge these gifts as being from them, and they only ever remain as second things, God approves. He approves. He says, go, enjoy. Are you hearing me? You willing to do that? (laughs) I remind us of this fellow Christian because we are vulnerable to two possible responses to these truths two responses that I think sadden the heart of God. One is the response of that Christian who almost flippantly enjoys all of these pleasures from God and barely is even aware that they are good gifts from him. They're taken for granted. They are assumed. 
There is barely an upward glance, barely an acknowledgement of God as the source and the giver of that delicious food that we ate today, the ice-cold drink that refreshed our thirst today, the birthday party that was so fun to celebrate, the extravagance that pleased, but wasn't necessary, but it pleased, the love that was so pure and so playful, the work that stimulated and challenged and provided. Every good gift in our lives is from the Father, isn't it? It comes down from Him. And our thank yous are to be lavish and they are to be frequent. When they aren't, that hurts Him. That hurts Him. Just like it hurts us when we give to others and they register little gratitude. To the giver of such enjoyable gifts as we get from God every day, to be generous and and filled with thanksgiving should just be our response, naturally. The other Christian response that I suspect saddens God is, is the one who mistakenly thinks that actually enjoying God's secondary gifts is somehow wrong. That that would be wrong. Not being spiritual enough if I delight in all of these things that God has given. This is the one who would never think of buying a party dress. Sackcloth and ashes for me. Right? This is the one who would never waste money on a manicure or cologne and certainly not on a caramel macchiato. Why should I enjoy such things while people are dying physically and spiritually all over the world right now? Why should I enjoy these gifts? these things. Why? Because they're from your father. And though those other issues are true, those are gifts from your father. And he gave them to you to enjoy. When he offers them to you and we can receive them with a clear conscience, we need to enjoy them. They come down from him. He approves. Some of us aren't serious enough. Some of us might be too serious. Somewhere in the middle is a sweet spot. But the truth treasures woven into this short little four-verse section of Ecclesiastes are on point for us. See God as the first thing in your life. See God as the source of all things good in your life. And then from that place, humbly, gratefully, thankfully, partake of all his secondary gifts within the boundaries that he set for how they're to be enjoyed and enjoy them all out. Why? Because he approves. He approves. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, it's been fun to talk about these things today and to reflect on your goodness in all these manifest gifts you give to us, we would confess to you that we're slow on the, the Thanksgiving side sometimes and that, that we're sad that that is true, but it is true. You lavish such kindnesses on us and we barely think about it sometimes. So one of our appeals to you this morning would be by your spirit, help us. Help us to 
be thankful receivers of your many gifts. Help us to put you first. And if, you, if you're in this room this morning and God has not been first in your life and secondary things have owned you, man, today's the day and now's the time. Get the priorities right. Give Jesus first place in your life. Confess your sin. Acknowledge your need for a Savior. Let Jesus be that Savior in your life. Put Him first. And let all these secondary things get their proper place. And you will have the joy that you've not known. And you will fill that emptiness in your heart with what is real. Let us help you in the journey. Heavenly Father, thank you. Now we're going to go out of these doors and we're going to step into a community that doesn't know the truth that we've been talking about today. Make us bold for Jesus' sake. And we all say together, amen and amen. Let's stand together, church.